Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa bhutam dhammam sangam namasami There's a lovely story from the Zen tradition. So Loshan asked the master Yantu, when arising and ceasing go on unceasingly, what then? And Yantu shouted, whose arising and ceasing is it? At this moment, Loshan awakened. Isn't it interesting how fast they get it? <laughs> These Zen practitioners. So we watch this arising and ceasing, going on unceasingly, and we want to know, well, what's it all about? But if we ask, whose arising and ceasing is it? And then we investigate, see, well, it doesn't belong to anyone. That's a very profound waking up, that this whole process doesn't belong to anyone. There isn't anyone in there who is breathing this arising and ceasing that is experienced. But the we, the pronoun, always arises before every experience, and then we believe in the pronoun. I am an I. And that's one of the hardest ones not to launch into. Remember, we talked about the five forms of escape. That's the most difficult one not to grasp. That's me. I'm breathing. This is who I am. I'm this breathing being, and the breath is arising and ceasing in me. But if we take out all those pronouns, then we begin to observe experience just as pure process. And if we can do that continuously and our insight deepens, the more that we pay close attention and the more close we get to the experience itself, it begins to fall apart. It breaks up. Just like as we spoke about before, when we enlarge what appears on the computer screen and you look at it through the computer's eyes, then you just see pixels. There's no image. It's nothing. This is the power that our mindfulness gives us, our insight, our understanding, our ability to be deeply aware of our experience. It gives us the power to burn up the image. And to burn up this impurity of injecting 
a human a being. Of course, there's human being, but it's actually beingness. It's an association of qualities. The mind is full of qualities we're developing. And that is where we have some freedom to form and formulate and train these qualitative experiences. This practice is a training. But do we want to be trained? We want enlightenment. As long as we want it in the right way, we have to put in the causes and conditions, but we have to consider how much we hang on to this process and identify with it, not only with the sense of I, but with a sense of an I that is unworthy because we've done foolish things out of ignorance, out of craving, without any training at all. We have done um, harmful things in our life. And we feel like we can't be forgiven for that. We feel that we're not worthy of this practice and of the results of it. We're not worthy disciples of the Buddha. And it doesn't work like that. Did you ever hear the story of Angulimala? He was a murderer. He was told to go on a mission and collect a garland of a thousand fingers. And so he followed this teacher's request and he killed 999 people. He was about to kill his mother in the forest. And the Buddha became aware of this horrendous intention in Angulimala's mind, and he appeared in the forest and intercepted Angulimala from killing his mother. And so when the Buddha intercepted, he was walking so fast that Angulimala couldn't catch him. And he said, stop, stop, mendicant, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. And you know what that means. The stopping that the Buddha did is stopping all impurity, stopping all rebirth through his awakening. So he said to Angulimala, now you stop. And Angulimala was so shocked. Shame overcame him. And he bowed down and asked the Buddha to train him. After killing 999 people, he became an arahant. So how could we possibly think that our unskillful deeds, whatever we've done in our life, are not forgivable? These are important examples for us to consider in our own lifetime, that everyone can come to this table and eat. Everyone. Everyone can practice. Everyone can evolve, and some beings will develop the path more quickly. It depends upon our predilections, our faculties, how dull, how sharp, and our efforts, how exuberant and how complacent. If we're mindful enough, and if we mind the mind continuously, then we can restrain our actions. We can notice when there are unwholesome mind states and we can turn them over. We can transform. We can reform 
reform, reformation, rehabilitation to undo that which has been done. So the karmic weight of our misdeeds, like with Angulimala, the king came looking for him. Where is the murderer? We hear that he's with the Buddha. And there sat Angulimala shaved in robes as a monk. And when the king saw him, he bowed and paid respects because of his reformation, no longer a murderer, but now a fully awakened being, the mind reformed. So what we're doing here is reformation, rehabilitation. I think about the residential schools, it just came to mind how so much harm was caused by beings that worked for the government and for churches, running schools that caused the torture and murder of small children, abuse, horrific acts. And this is what human beings are capable of doing. But could one escape from thoughts of fear and regret? Well, we know that two of the great protectors of the mind are hiri and otapa, moral conscience and moral compunction. And it's moral. We have a realization that we have done harm. And we want to reform that. We want these faculties and this being, this human being, to act well. And so we establish ourselves in precepts. We establish ourselves in the Dhamma. We make a commitment to these two protectors to reform our ways of being. Then we follow that because we have the shame about what we've done. We've understood. The heart opens and we start to follow the Eightfold Noble Path, right view. We've seen that is not the way. This is the way. We establish ourselves in sila, dana sila, generosity, and virtue, remembering the harm we've caused. As we perform wholesome deeds, we purify. And this is where otapa comes in. So we found the Dhamma. And we develop our minds as best as we can. And we work towards the fire of illumination, which burns away all unskillfulness in the mind. So these two protectors of moral conscience and moral compunction, you know what not to do and you'd follow the precepts. It's like a safety net. As long as we're on the path, we may make minor mistakes, but we have the awareness, the mindfulness, the heedfulness, the apamada amatapatang, pamado machuno padang. Heedfulness is the path to the deathless, and heedlessness is the path to death. So morally, we will be alive. We will be vibrant, exuberant. And the mind is on fire with the Dhamma. We're passionate about this. It's not about gain, running after sensory experiences indiscriminately. But we become discriminating because we have a moral foundation. 
And underneath the moral foundation is generosity. Right here, we're sitting here, we're sitting and practicing this path that is given to us out of a compassion unparalleled in the world, the compassion of the Buddha, reaching across millennia to give us a solid foundation for our own freedom. But we have to remember to pull out this thorn of I, this, the person that really, when we understand that there is no one there, there's no one there but an association or a composite of qualities and many karmic formations that can be clarified, that can be freed through training. And so we take responsibility for our kamma, for our bundle of karmic deeds from lifetimes. And we make a, a determination to clear that, to clear the slate, so to speak. And so what we're really doing is a healing. We're healing. This freedom is a way of healing a wound. So in medical terminology, there are two kinds of healing. Like if you have a, a cut, the first healing is healing by the first intention. So healing by first intention, you stitch, and then the wound heals. But the healing in the Dhamma is healing by the second intention, where the wound stays open and it is allowed to heal and little by little from underneath it grows together it's like an organic healing that slowly comes together and to me that describes the whole process of waking up because it doesn't happen like a stitch you can't take a needle and stitch it together and wake up although Loshan awakened when he he just heard that who is it that does this unceasing in-breath and out-breath? There's no one there. So this organic healing is the heart's own, just it's like an intuitive waking up. There's no one that can wake, no one wakes up, but the heart just opens, the flower blooms from within. And then we wake up. Not we, but there is a waking. The heart just blossoms. It's the natural outcome of opening to this truth. As soon as we come closer and closer to understanding reality, the heart just heals naturally by coming into contact with truth. It cannot not happen. If we allow this healing to take its own organic process by protecting the mind with the practices of hiri and otapa, which is protecting the mind by having conscience about responsibility for everything that we do or say or even think, how we guard the mind with heedfulness, mindfulness. Not to be lazy, but to make effort, to follow the Eightfold Noble 
path, we're not complacent. We're active. We're dynamic in this process. We put in the right causes and conditions, and then the heart opens, and the understanding, it's like a dawning, like an illumination. Because if you start a fire, you have to collect kindling, and then you put the match to the fuel, and it bursts into flame. And it's the same with putting in the right causes and conditions for our own awakening. If we keep putting in the right causes and conditions to protect the mind from harming itself or others, then we're on the way of benevolence. This is it. This is freedom from fear. This is freedom. This is that which is worthy of praise, that which is worthy of our full attention and devotion. Not the things of the world, but this more than anything. Do you know in Thailand they have a saying, no obstacles, no perfection. So it's by encountering all these obstacles you want just a free open highway, like stitch it up. No, this happens. This is a healing by the second intention. And people might think, what are you doing for the world? This reminds me of a cute story. My father was one of my great advocates, perhaps my greatest ally of all, my mom and dad both. And one day when I was visiting, I was a nun, and we're going up the elevator, and this elderly, well-groomed woman is in the elevator, and she knows him very well. And we get out of the elevator, and she says to me, I'd like to ask you a question. What do you do for the world? And my father, do you know what he said to her? He said, what do you do for the world? And she walked off in a huff. And then he went down the hall to the door of his apartment, and he said, I want to kick her with a pointy shoe. I tried to hush him up so she shouldn't hear because he wanted me to be respected and loved because he so respected and loved what I was doing with my life. And other people may not understand how many times have I been spat on and dismissed when I came back in robes from Myanmar. All my former <laughs> friends, they just turned their backs. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. Or if they did, it was really at arm's length. Then I realized, who are my true friends? Yes, we have to suffer obstacles to pursue that which we love and that which we know is worthy of our commitment and devotion. But we can overcome those obstacles, and it's by overcoming them that we grow stronger. By overcoming them, we grow more resolved. Our determination gets deeper, and we can overcome greater and greater obstacles because, in fact, this internal Himalaya that we're trying to climb is the tallest mountain in the whole universe. 
and we're trying to climb it with our fingernails. But actually, the Buddha gives us very good tools. Hiri Otabat is amongst them. And all the reflections on the Eightfold Path, on the Four Noble Truths, on the five powers of the mind, faith, energy, mindfulness, focusing, concentrating the mind, learning to focus and still the mental formations and wisdom, the capacity to be wise, the four sublime abidings which we can practice every day, not just in the sitting posture. Why does the Buddha teach all these postures? He only mentions four, but there are many other examples where disciples get enlightened like Ananda was breathing mindfully while he was lying down, and he awakened. So these postures are the Buddha's encouragement to us that this is a pra practice to carry moment by moment, as long as we're breathing. So Loshan said that the breath is coming ceaselessly. So we should breathe with unceasing attention and then we will awaken. But we have to remember, who is it that's breathing? No one's breathing. Not to identify with somebody that's on the path to awaken, or I'm going to get. This is, this is not the language that will help us let go of this identification with the self, but just to develop the qualities that will lead us to the waking up, that organic process of second intention where the heart just opens and understanding dawns. It happens because we've given it the right causes and conditions. So when we're walking, we walk mindfully. Every foot, we feel the pressure of our feet touching the floor, lifting the foot, touching the floor, walking very caringly, very conscientiously very aware of our movement, not thinking. If you drive a car and you're holding the steering wheel sitting, be mindful. In that moment, please drive. Don't be thinking about where you're going or arriving at your destination before your car gets there. We have to be so attentive exactly where we are. Feel your hands on the steering wheel. You're boiling a kettle in the kitchen, standing and boiling the kettle. Feel the weight of your feet on the ground. Feel that. Feeling that sensation with so much awareness and attention to the physical sensations is a moment of extreme groundedness. And by being grounded, in that very moment of total groundedness, the kettle may start boiling and we may be in jhana. The kettle is boiling. Hello. <laughs> Turn off the gas. Because the mind is so settled within the groundedness of the body. It's about being in the present moment. It's about not going to the past or the future, letting go thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, but just being present for what we're experiencing here and now, and moment by moment, present moment after present moment, 
in whatever posture we may be in, lying down. Sometimes we lie down to meditate. The reason that we don't start with lying down as young practitioners is because it's easy to fall asleep. We associate lying down with sleeping or losing attention. So we have to train ourselves to stay awake maybe a bit harder when we're doing lying down practice. But really, every moment is a moment of potential waking up. And the process then proceeds organically. The heart opens now with the sublime abidings. Those are such valuable practices, and we've chanted them together, the practice of loving kindness. These are antidotes to unwholesome mental states. So it's not just about being in the present moment and nonstop, continuous attention on the breath, but it's also the way we hold our experience. It's with gentleness. It's not with your fists clenched. Because there needs to be a relaxed demeanor to approach this project very gently and very balanced, not over-striving, not forcing, not using that crushing energy. Unless there are strong defilements arising, then we may have to enforce. We want to reform the mind. Sometimes the reformation requires a bit of telling off, like, no, this is not going to work. This is not to be done. Like to a small child, these absolute boundaries, we give ourselves boundaries. If we see hatred arising in the heart, we just say no to that. Not healthy. Would you put your finger in a fire intentionally? Not normally. Would you set yourself on fire? No. So think of those unskillful mind states as ways of setting the the heart on fire in an unwholesome way. We want the fire of awakening, not the fire of destruction. So we stay away from greed, we stay away from ill will, we stay away from delusion. Delusion is the most difficult one because we're so deluded. How does delusion know itself? Sometimes someone else has to point it out. Look what you're doing, causing harm. How many times are we self-deflating? And it's not about self-inflating, it's about not believing in that self, but by growing the qualities of metta, karuna, compassion. So have compassion for oneself and see that these are the obstacles that we have to overcome. And it's by learning how to practice these skillful mind states of loving kindness, compassion, gladness. And whatever we experience in this life as a result of other people's choices for us, we have to also realize these are karmic results. Not that we're a bad person. We may be living a very wholesome life, but there may be some unwholesome come on left. And now we're experiencing it in whatever way it's coming. 
But if we put in the causes or conditions for good karma to result, then we can bear some equanimity towards what we're experiencing and reflect with wisdom. Mindfulness, practice over and over again, mindfulness of the way karma works, the laws of karma and taking them to be true are ways of perfecting our equanimity. And we want to do that because upeka, that balanced, it's the sublime abiding, which is the, the culmination of loving kindness, compassion, and gladness is balance. This equipoise in the heart, which brings about the greatest organic healing in the heart. Because it's when there is complete equipoise, complete unconditional equanimity, that's where the Himalaya peak is reached. That's where the realization of liberation, there's no one there, is understood. That's where the true understanding dawns in the mind. There's no one there to be free. There's just a mind fully open fully awake, fully free. And that's a possibility for us, and we have to, of course, have faith that it's possible. If we have doubt, then realize that the doubt is a hindrance. If we have faith, that's a complete antidote to doubt. And maybe little by little, faith will grow when we practice more and more loving-kindness in the face of hateful, insulting words that come our way. Or we have compassion for the person speaking in those hurtful, insulting ways because this will not be good fruit for them. Hate, when we practice ill will or we feel hatred and we don't restrain it, or we act out of unskillful mind states, we don't realize the poison within us. It's a complete hindrance and obstacle to that organic opening of the heart. So that's why we have to take great care in how we practice. And mindfulness is the path to the deathness, minding the mind moment by moment. That's the way to perfection, it's the way to blamelessness. Healing, we all want healing, we all want wholeness. And the wholeness is an emptiness. It's the understanding there's no one. It's the emptiness that is full and the fullness that is empty. And we have complete peace with conditions exactly as they are. So I'll stop there for tonight.